welcome to or welcome back to the On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on? The hands on my watch are reading it's that time again. Time to give the people what they want. Let's go. <laughs> I love it. Excited, excited, excited. So, um, let's 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 dive in today. We'll go straight into it, which is we're going to talk about something that is paramount to distance running and is something that has been de- debated since I'll say since the start of the sport. Correct. You're you are you know your history. You must um, be subscribed to the scholar program or something. I am subscribed. <laughs> In fact, I have created and read all of it. Um, True story. <laughs> um, but if you're subscribed to the scholar program, you would understand how far back this idea and concept goes all the way back to the beginning, which is increasing mileage. When? Why? And how? So today we're going to break apart and give our opinions and give data and integrate science and practice and history to talk about, you know, how do we increase mileage? When should we do it? And why? All right. Mileage. Where do we want to orient and start the discussion, Steve? Do we want to start from a very scientific space, energy system development, biomotor space? Do we want to just start from a general psychological space, callousing approach? There's a lot of things that increased mileage does, and there's also a lot of things it does not do. You know, I'm not sure, but let's, let's, how about this? Let's start with what I think is the prevailing myth with mileage the one thing that sticks around, which is this 10% rule for increasing. Oh, dear God. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. That is, yes, silly. And maybe that will provide a pathway into it. Um, so, this 10% rule, where did it come from? You know, I'm not sure. But I, have a, I have a theory. And reading a lot of literature and reading in the running boom era, right, when we translated, we're trying to translate running into an industry from instead of just this like uh, sport uh, that was pretty insular and kind of, again, off the radar. So during the 80s, the running boom era, there's all these books that came out, all this publications like, you know, George Sheehan, like, I mean, you name it, man, like there are a lot of running books from the 80s like and frankly i read a lot of them most of them are junk um there's some really good ones like one of the best ones i think for as a side tangent um to actually bring lydiard's method to the masses in a more reasonable and articulate way is ron Dawes's um the complete runner um book <laughs> i was rereading it today i was like God, this guy nailed it, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. Um, out of print, but pretty inexpensive if you want to pick it up. Um, but anyways, so yeah, they had a problem. It was like, how do we get the masses and people who are reading books on their own a safe progression of training? However, they created a very uniform approach because, again, our bodies and minds 
um, I should say our minds, like the concept of pattern recognition or uniformity. So like, oh, 10%, that's a safe tolerance to prescribe mileage increasing. And it was just one of those rules and one of those numbers that was safe, made sense, was very uniformed, gave people a clear direction, like 100 mile weeks for base training, what have you, and just stuck. And I think it just stuck and it stuck and it stuck. Even though there is little to no evidence that it works, it's useful, it has any impact, um, and that it actually is, is worth the, the sticking power and sustaining power it has um, received in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, I, I think you're. I think you're right on that. Um, I think it did kind of come about in that that era, and it just stuck. And I think it's a lot of it is is down to two things. It is our, as you said, our how our mind works in the sense that we like uniformity, we like nice round numbers, and and um, almost a linear linearity of seeing linear progression and you know something that is measurable. I, I think that plays a large amount, and you can see this even in the, even in the training at the time in the you know going back to the 1940s and 50s is is you saw the same sort of progressions, not in terms of mileage, but the predominant you know theories at the time, which were all kind of interval based in the 40s and 50s, is the same kind of rules of thumb applied to intervals in the sense that Fran Stample, for example, would assign you know, his classic 10 by 400, right? But instead of worrying about the volume, it was, you know what? We're going to start at at 72 seconds per 400. And then you're going to increase by two seconds to go to 70 the next time. And then 68 and then 66. And it was like this nice, safe, quote unquote, progression. Um, and I think you see the same thing in the, in the, in the, you know, mileage increase. And the one thing I'll add from a science perspective is, this has actually been tested a couple times in uh, in research where they've designed randomized controlled trials where they've taken and you know novice runners, put them in different training groups for a couple months, and had some increase their mileage by less than ten percent, and some increase their mileage by you know fifteen twenty percent per week, and. What they look at and what they find afterwards is that the injury rate, which is what the 10% rule is supposed to, you know, prevent, is the same in both groups. And a again, a couple years ago, I think in the early maybe 2010 era, there was a nice, um, nice couple research studies by the same group that looked at this and found no difference in this. And let's let's use that idea to unpack some of these misconceptions. And I think the one that comes to mind here is that adaptation does not occur in a nice, linear, predictable manner. It's non-uniform. It's non-uniform. It's non-uniform. Cannot stress that enough. It is non-uniform. Even though your training plan is very uniform <laughs> or linear, uh, adaptation, the way the body, you know, grows and gets strengthened is non-uniform. The sooner I think a coach embraces that fundamental truth, the, you know, better their coaching becomes because then you're not looking for this, uh, kind of nice, even steady increase 
of you know mileage and or pace quotas being hit for the runner week after week after week. Yes, and I and we all know this intuitively because think about it. How many times have you coached an athlete and got it perfectly correct in terms of improving in a linear fashion every every single race or every single time, right? Or every single season. It doesn't occur very often. More often what occurs is you get some improvement, you get some stagnation, sometimes you get some going backwards. Sometimes that training that you did for an entire, you know, uh, three-month season doesn't show up until, you know, six to nine months down the line. And we get, and we sit there as coaches and we're like, wait a minute, like, this athlete, like, where'd that jump come from? Like, where'd this improvement? I sent sent him away for the summer and all of a sudden this improvement came. Well, someone else doesn't make that jump, even though they're doing similar training. So, as coaches on the on the macro level we see this non-uniformity of progression and adaptation all the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we fail to like realize it and understand it on a micro like mileage week to week or workout to workout level that you know people don't progress linearly yeah and that is tough for our brains to comprehend but uh when you say, okay, why? And it's, you know, the root and the anchor of kind of Stephen Mai's coaching practice, it's science, it's physiology, right? There, you know, there are five bio- biomotor qualities that we're trying to enhance, right? Speed, strength, stamina, which some people call endurance incorrectly, but stamina, suppleness, and, you know, skill or coordination. And then there's three main energy systems we're trying to develop, right? The alactic or ATP creatine phosphate, the glycolytic, right? Which is, runs predominantly on glycogen, which also then produces when it runs out of like enough readily available glycogen, lactate, that can become acidic, or you can teach your body through conditioning how to use that lactate as uh, a fueling energy. And then finally, the oxidative or aerobic, which runs on the most widely, ubiquitously, and forever available fuel source in the human body, fatty acids. Now, at the same time too, right, it's not like these systems turn on and off in isolation. They're all going on concurrently during any type of training or running or activity. It's just one fueling substrate is the predominant um, avenue for of fuel during a certain type of activity. So when you go back to mileage, you have to say, all right, from a scientific perspective, from a physiological and biomotor perspective, I'm going to increase mileage, but what mileage am I increasing and why am I increasing that mileage to a condition? Because all these traits are conditional, right? It's the uh, said principle. If you don't uh, work on something, you know, the body then you know, has a law of reversibility and it goes away. And like we talked about in our previous podcasts, there's certain training effects, right? Acute, cumulative, and also residuals to certain types of qualities. So all that in consideration, when you talk about increasing mileage as an endurance athlete, which even a middle distance athlete, um, and that's two minutes and up in terms of how long your competitive exercise is or event, you're trying to, as Canova has so rightly understood 
and hit the nail on the head even before the super shoes phenomenon with his marathoners is you're trying to increase the amount and duration of fueling that comes from the fatty acid substrate when you're doing the competitive activity at the competitive speed you want. That to me kind of rests at the heart of your rationale of why and when and how to increase mileage. Otherwise, you're just doing it to do it and it's like, great, it's a big number, it's a sexy number and you think this magic aerobicness as I call it um, uh, will be gifted to you. But again, it's increasing mileage and increasing that fatty acid fueling substrate or oxidative capacity comes under very specific conditions too. Uh, and that may be something we can talk about the specificity of those conditions. So we don't go down the wrong track of just increase global volume for the hell of it. No, you got to increase certain types of running at certain specific or um, narrow tolerance of intensities to get that fatty acid bumping ability. Yeah. So uh, a couple things to unpack there is that I think that the mileage is a global view of a lot of different singular components and it needs to be understood in that way. It's, it's often misunderstood as a marker to understand like training stress but again, it's it's a singular component that should be taken almost um, almost a little bit lightly in, it, in in that sense. So I think that's that's important to understand. And then I think the other point that is important to understand there that you hinted at is that um, the body adapts in different ways and manners and mechanisms. So. For example, the aerobic system might adapt before your muscular tendon mm-hmm. unit tissue, yeah. All that stuff is ready for those increases in, in, in mileage and volume. And these are these are this is something that, for instance, sports like cycling or swimming don't have to worry about. And if you looked at volumes in terms of minutes, let's say, instead of miles. Uh, of the endurance sports, running is typically the least in terms of minutes spent doing that activity. But it's the highest in terms of mechanical stress on the body. Exactly. So that's that's the that's the factor we're playing into consideration here is that in running we have to balance this. How do we get the demands for of volume or time? on our feet or to use a strength training term time under tension um, that we need to get the adaptations in the aerobic direction, but, but not at the expense of this slower to adapt, um, you know, muscular tendon, connective tissue, et cetera, that, that that's going on. And I'll call, I call that the mechanical, right? So that's the, the anatomy, right? The anatomy needs to adapt. So you have the two things, right? You have the physiological and then you have the anatomy, the, the mechanical. And that is the big issue. So there's all the science uh, and evidence and research that looks at rate of physiological or aerobic system or different energy system adapt adaptations in relation to low volume loads and progressions in non-weight bearing 
endurance activities like swimming and cycling, right? We as running coaches, we can't make that same, uh, we can't make a clean copy and paste because it does not factor in that mechanical loading. And that is where most coaches go astray is they think, okay, I'm going to bump up this person's global mileage, whether in terms of, uh, you know, more easy running, more tempo running, more, um, you know, lactic threshold, uh, you know, or anaerobic threshold type work, but they discredit the athlete's preparedness mechanically to be able to absorb that without mechanically or anatomically breaking down. And this is where strength training, regular strength training, regular um, speed in terms of hill, either like Canova's style short hill sprints or, you know, fly 30s max or fly 40s, um, even, you know, going back to um, Igloy's fresh hundreds, right? Because what that regular uh, injection of speed does, not only from a uh, neuromuscular standpoint, from a coordination standpoint, a biomotor standpoint, make the body more crisp and coordinated at all speeds, it also gives the body a bigger range of motion. And we know that strength is joint specific. So that larger range of motion that you're moving your arms and your legs through to run that speed work, even though it's very minuscule in volume, but it done every like three to five days, you know, for maybe a minute's worth of work total, that's enough of a stimulus and stress to allow mechanically the body not to get uh, ingrained in these um, smaller range of motion grooves that might happen from a large volume of, you know, uh, base training or base miles or aerobic miles or lower amplitude, lower velocity miles. Yeah. And I think that's when you're, what you're looking at when you're coming at deciding, okay, mileage is a global indicator. And if we break that down into types of miles from, or types of volume from sprints to easy recovery running, um, you see that you have these differential, um, capacities in each depending on 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 the mechanical stresses right so uh, for example plyometrics or some sort of sprinting which is again the most kind of plyometric exercise you can do is is high demand right high demand on especially the tendons um so therefore because they're high demand the volume is 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 lower obviously but if if you know if I'm zooming out here, I'm thinking, okay, in terms of mileage, what I'm looking at more so is the stress loads in different kind of categories or areas that should add up to things, right? So if we look at sprint work, for example, my cap um, might be only a couple hundred meters total in a week, right? If we look at easy recovery running, well, my cap there is going to be very different in different athletes. So, for example, if the athlete has um, a propensity for, you know, overuse injuries, then my cap for recovery running could be 25 miles a week and I could supplement that with cross training or whatever have you to get that aerobic volume. And I think let, they let, are, let, let's put a pin on that. That's a really important point, Steve. Um, is 
your slow miles, like Peter Snell famously after he became a, you know, researcher and PhD in um, physiology and et cetera. He said, look, the, the training I did with Lydia was spot on. The only thing I would change is I would have done a lot less plodding around at seven minute pace miles because it was unnecessary from a energy system standpoint and um, fueling conditioning standpoint to get that volume in it was providing oxidative recovery, but he could have done it in another modality, right? And so let's say you have an athlete that is mechanically unsound. Do not increase their recovery volume. Just shift that to swimming, cycling, non-impact oxidative modalities so that they will get the re- recovery um, boost from an oxidative exercise lasting 30 minutes to an hour, but not the mechanical stress. And coach, you can be okay with it. Like just if they're, they're shaky mechanically run, have focus on quality running and then all the other supplemental or oxidative recovery running can then be cross training and they'll be totally fine. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think there it's, it's again, when we talk about mileage increases, it's about knowing what your limiting factor is and where your strengths are on, on different things. So if your limiting factor is, let's say you have uh, a lot of shin or, or bone related shin issues, like then that tells you that the mechanical loading that that shin is taking on um, can't handle the loads that you're giving. So you have to figure out how to deload it uh, to a degree and get in that, that nice kind of sweet spot zone where it can handle the mechanical stress. Because if we look at if we look at bones, if we look at tendons, whatever, all we're looking at to stay healthy is essentially a balance between like the breakdown and the buildup of that material. So with bone, you're looking at turnover of like, you, you know, calcium turnover, bone ache, turnover, etc. And, and keeping it in a positive regard because your body is a living, breathing thing that is constantly developing. No different than if we went in the weight room. My goal is to keep a balance between the breakdown, the muscle tears that I am causing when I'm working out and their ability to repair and grow back stronger on the muscular level. Same thing applies to tendons. Same thing applies to bones, et cetera, is we're finding that balance and that balance is uh, very individual and then shifts. And I'm going to go, and this is why I think that 10% rule again doesn't um, hold up is because that, that level individually matters and varies so much so that um, you can take an athlete and increases his volume by, let's say 50%. Mm-hmm. And if his structure muscle, tendons, bones, et cetera, are robust and able to handle that, he'll be totally fine. Yeah, totally. Not not a problem. <laughs> not a problem, you know? And, and, and this can change over time, as is, which is important, that although we have predispositions, it can change over time. But for others, at a 5% increase from, you know, some volume could be what pushes them over the edge. So, it, it becomes about, I think, if we're talking, okay, let's dive into the d- details. How, how and how much do we increase volume? Well, the first thing that you need to do is understand, A, 
what benefit this is giving me, what adaptation am I getting out of this? And that depends on where you're increasing the volume, right? Is it threshold volume? Is it steady volume? Is it recovery volume? And is it fast volume? And then B, do they have the abilities, the mechanical, you know, structure to handle that, which again is dependent on what type of volume you're building, right? If I'm building um, volume on the, let's say, short and fast side, well, we know that's going to put a heavy demand on musculotendon units, but not as much of a demand, we'll say, on, let's say, the long-term bone health in some areas, right? Because it's it's high demand, yes, but it's not going to push us to an overuse injury if we're sprinting um, a couple hundred meters or uh, even up to a mile running fast or a couple miles running fast in a week. But on the other hand, a high load of, let's say, steady running can really stress the bone um you know, repair kind of cycle that goes on and the overuse injuries that are, are um, you know, frequent in that area. My rule is this, run better, run faster, then run more in that order. So we talked about mechanical loading, right? And how that's a really important determinant to if someone can sustain more volume globally or, you know, in, in a specific area. If they, you don't teach them, coach, how to run better, which is to run more efficiently with more accurate foot strikes, better angles at, t- um, shank angles at touchdown, um, better uh, movement quality with the, the upper, uh, the arms and relationship to the legs in the passive and active phase of the running cycle. It does not matter if you add more volume, like this concept of like, Oh, you just, if they run more, they'll figure out how to run more efficient. No, no, no. That doesn't happen from a mechanical, you know, um, point of view, because you know how I know is like, who taught you how to swim? Someone had to teach you how to swim. Who taught you how to swing a golf club? Who taught you like things that look simple on the surface are actually very complex and require a certain degree of teaching and learning to be get, you know, a degree of, uh, safe proficiency at it is common for people not to work on running form or mechanics or posture or technique because it's like, Oh, that's just the way you are. It's a skill like shooting a three pointer. It's a skill like um, throwing a football or a hundred mile an hour fastball. They're all things that can be taught if you know how to teach it. So one move better when you move better, then you can start moving faster and faster is a sign of increased efficiency or coordination or comfortableness with uh, how you are mechanically loading and unloading and um, distributing energy impulse and return, right? Once you've done that, then more, then you can do more. Volume in my mind is the last parameter to increase the final frontier. It should be reserved to increase by either more elite runners as they've aged and developed and been consistent. Um, and, you know, that could be your older high school runner, your older college runner, or your pro runners, right? You don't want to prematurely increase volume to a really high capacity because, again, if you don't take the mechanical um, preparation seriously, it's just going to be this never-ending injury cycle. Then, two, the um, main thing to remember is, you know, why? Like, what's the reason for increasing the volume? 
we do know, right, that increases in volume and increases in activity burns more calories. And so you can get a runner who might be a little chubby and out of shape in more, in you know, to th- slim down, so to speak, to increase their activity load, which will then increase their calorie burning. And that's one reason a lot of coaches prescribe miles. It's like, this person is, you know, a little too chubby. We need to get them fit. So, hey, I'm going to just jack your, your global volume up, whether it's easy running, tempo running, aerobic running, or whatever running. But again, it's um, the, the question you also have to ask is we know intensity influences calorie burning too. So maybe what you can do is like, you know, they can run six miles rather than like saying, we're going to make that six mile, you know, uh, staple training run into an eight or 10 mile run, just have them run that six mile run faster, right? Get them more proficient at it before they do more of it. What that will also do from energy system development standpoint is increase the amount of fatty acids they're going to use as a as a primary fueling substrate so they'll kind of get off the glycolytic um uh engine so to speak or or be dependent on or more less predominant dependency on it and then overall that will impact their ability to recover quicker uh recover quickly but you know intra and inter um, workouts when they do workouts so that's the Bowerman approach, right? Of saying, oh, we don't need to run 100 mile weeks. Let's just have our training runs or our quote unquote easy days, you know, and you see this in his logs with like, say, Prefontaine, um, you know, in, in the fall, the easy run was between 6.30 and 5.30. In the spring, the easy run was between 5.30 and five minute pace, only four to eight miles for that quote unquote easy run, right? But because pre and Bowerman and Dillinger had systematically and patiently developed that what we call aerobic capacity, right? Um, he was able to then do those four to eight mile runs at five thirty to five minute pace in between really killer workout days and have little to no disturbance. And that's the thing we also have to, you know, understand is yes, the goal is to always increase the capacity of something before the power. So increasing aerobic capacity, glycolytic capacity, and that is sound practice. But you then need to increase the power before you go back and increase the capacity. And what that means by power is, all right, the speed of that or the difficult or intensity of it, right? So if you're building up, let's say you're running 50 miles a week and 25 of those miles are aerobic miles, have the athlete get to a space where they get, you know, easily to a non-disturbance state when running aerobically at a fast clip, then just saying, all right, you've able to handle this load and stress of this volume. We're not going to increase the pace. We're going to increase the volume instead. It, to me, it's just misguided because it's too much volume too soon without proven proficiency at um, developing a really key cap- uh, dependency, which is that energy system feeling substrate of what we're calling oxidative. Yeah, I'm glad you brought out that nuance there because, you know, I think we can sum- summarize this up by a simple saying, which is don't go there until you need to go there. Which, which by that means, I mean, you, your, our job as coaches is try to get an adaptation. And we have these myriad of ways to get an adaptation or get a similar adaptation, such as like aerobic development, um, 
and all cardiovascular development, slow twitch fiber development, all these things that are similarly related, we can get there through a myriad of ways. You know, it's the classic, well, how in the world did Igloy train Bob Shule to be so aerobically, you know, developed uh, off of, you know, doing a bunch of 200s, 300s, 400s, 100 meter repeats all day? Well, he manipulated the workouts so that, like, they got those aerobic adaptations in a different way. Not dissimilar to swimmers who, because they don't want to spend, let's say, two hours swimming back and forth not varying the pace at all in a, you know, whatever, 25, 50-yard pool, whatever it is. They just do a bunch of intervals with very short rests, right? And change and all that. They're they're just getting the same adaptations through different means. And it doesn't mean it's a better means or a worse means. It just shows to me the different ways we can get to the same point. And to your point there is I think that as a coach, we have to consider and acknowledge that. And if I step back and I say, okay, let's bring some pr- practicality to it. What does this mean in terms of a, a high school, college, and pro athlete? Well, or, or a coach for those athletes. Well, I think from a high school level, it's very simple. Is you're starting with a fresh slate, as we talked in our very first podcast on this, the fresh slate phenomenon, um, which means you get to decide how they adapt and you should probably do it through a variety of means and not overloading in one direction. So if we can have some very, some short, easy, slow runs to get them just time on their feet and get them adjusted to running easy and enjoyable, combined with some steady running, some fartlek, some slow interval training, we'll call it, you can get this adaptation in, in a variety of directions without maxing out the the quote-unquote mileage, you know, category or maxing out the threshold tempo kind of category and leave them room for de- development growth. So, you you have this wide array, you know. As we move up through the ranks, you know, looking at some of the work Canova did, it was interesting with some of his elite runners is he would increase the volume, you know, their max volume from year to year and then start decreasing it as their career went along. So, for example, off the top of my head, I remember steeplechase world record holder Shaheen would go up from, you know, uh, 70 to 90 to 100 and then you know, about three years into that progression, he'd go back down to 80, you know, to 70. And when Canova was asked why, he said, well, I I built it, and I'm paraphrasing, but he built it up to the necessary level to give him that capacity. And then it was no longer a stimulus. So, he just needed to maintain that stimulus and then go in a different direction to get like a similar aerobic development stimulus that global volume of easy running, for example, was no longer providing. Yes. A hundred percent. I think that's the thing to remember is the adaptation you're trying to get. It's a moving target. Sometimes the stimulus is a moving target. And when someone gets accustomed to it, then that you no longer can use the same means to achieve that stimulus. And, you know, Canova is very famous for extension. 
And for him, extension does not mean more. It means more of faster, right? And so that's always the key thing that we're trying to target is increasing the faster volume or increasing the, the faster stimulus in a direction that leads to positive changes that it can be expressed in the racing environment that the athlete's going into. You know, one point I want to nail in there that I think is important is in Canova's work, which if you, if you subscribe to the scholar program, you're about to get deluged with the most (laughs) Canova stuff on earth because we have this treasure trove. Thanks to Renato. AKA Canova fest is coming. It's coming. I'm just going through and organizing because it is so much stuff. But anyways, thanks to his generosity, you can look through through things. And um, one of the things he says is once you get a, a, a lead athlete or a developed athlete, we'll say, is that the training and I'm going to I forget the percentages exactly, but it's something like training further than 20 percent off the pace of the specific race is no longer training. And this is in, again, with Canova, you also have to understand it's in what period. In the specific period, yes. Remember, he has the general, fundamental, and specific. So so it's 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 no longer training. It's all recovery mm-hmm. is what is his general thing is. And then, again, this is for elite athletes who have developed their mileage and developed all this capacities. And when they're in the specific period when it's highly polarized training. Exactly. So it shifts towards, okay, I need to be within some sort of realm of specificity, not race pace all the time, but somewhere close to get this stimulus. And my, my, my runs shift to, you know, essentially if, I, if I'm running slower, it's recovery. And that's, it doesn't mean you eliminate that stuff, but it's, it ceases to serve the stimulus and purpose that maybe it served during the general period when you're doing a lot of quote unquote non-specific training that is steady and fast, steady and long and steady and all that stuff, which serves as that foundation, but it ceases to be the training after a while. And I think that is such a an important point here is we need to understand as we're talking about mileage increases and stuff like that is like, is it serving as something that is, is adapting in a particular direction or is it serving as something we've built that adaptation and now we're maintaining it and what does it take to maintain it? Exactly. And the, the goal is also what you're going to do with it. So if you're going to build global volume in say a general prep period or conditioning period in the beginning of your training, what are you going to do with that volume you built later on? So if your goal is not to translate that volume to faster, more specific running, and this is where Canova, you know, understands very clearly all the volume that they're building in the early general period, right? When everything, every stimulus or type of um, stimulus is separate is going to be tra- is going to be used to be translated to higher specific training volume or speed of of work later on. So if I'm get, moving an athlete up from sixty to eighty miles a week, you know, uh, and I think that's going to help them get better because it's going to give them higher stimulus, uh, higher frequency of stimulus, get, burn more calories. Well, that eighty miles a week better be faster 
in three or four months when we translate to a specific period. Otherwise, why do we do it? Why did I put that excessive mechanical load on them? If I wanted to create a higher activity level, you could also do strength training or plyometrics, which are high intensity and will burn a lot of calories. And this is one of the secrets why people do daily doubles, right? Or in other, um, you know, uh, uh, sports like weightlifting or even swimming, they'll do triples, right? Because that higher frequency creates a higher activity level, burns more calories, they get, you know, they change their body composition and go get quote unquote fitter. And it is no secret, right? It's easier to move less mass in running since we have this friction and ground contact times and forces than it is to move heavier mass. So it behooves people to, you know, quote unquote, be uh, in a, you know, less weighted condition or a racing weight condition when the time is right. But <laughs> if you're not actively seeking to translate the global volume or easy volume you're initiating um, an adaptation to or familiarity to early on into faster stuff later, it then I'm the why it doesn't really make sense from a training practicality standpoint. And, you know, I wanted to cover Steve, like how right you are about, novels training stimulus and sometimes volume is it and sometimes it's not like a good example is like say with um athletes i worked with like i'll use dan herrera who's i use a lot on this podcast he's a good example because again he's kind of a mutt in terms of his ability to adapt to any stimulus and go in a certain direction is very malleable and when i first started coaching him he came from ucla at the time coached by forrest braden who they ran a lot of volume a lot of tempering um a lot of like hard threshold uh, aerobic threshold, anaerobic threshold running. And he thrived on that. He, you know, got to like, you know, 14 low 5k guy, you know, 340 low 1500 meter guy. Um, but when I like started coaching him, I go, okay, you've done a lot of that. That's no longer the thing that's going to, for this period of development, uh, you know, next couple of years stimulate you. So we'll maintain a little bit of it, but we're actually going to go in a completely different direction. Speed, glycolytic, you know, lactate tolerance, because you just need to fundamentally get foot speed faster so you can compete at the international level at the 1500. Like, man, if you can't break 50, you have no, no chance, you know, um, in, in the quarter at competing at the international level. And so we went in that direction. And then after several years, we kind of started to go back and add some more, uh, aerobic volume, aerobic focus or highly, um, faster oxidative, uh, volume in terms of like, ins and outs like you know uh, on the track because he likes running on the track so one of his core workouts would be two to three miles of 100 meter you know stride the straights at like 3k 1500 meter speed 100 meter jog the turn and the jog would start off at a jog but then it would you know over time the recovery interval will get shallower and shallower and faster and faster and become six minute pace 545 pace and that became a core quote-unquote tempo run but what we're doing is also creating some lactate dynamics as well in there um, that are really specific to what a miler needs rather than just say, hey, go out and just run a steady state three mile, four mile tempo run. That really wasn't going to do um, what he needed to be done to from a stimulus standpoint to get him ready to compete at the level it, at the intensity he needed to be ready to compete at. You know, it's, it's, I know we're talking about mileage, but this is, this is a good example of, of like, um, changing the stimulus and adding and changing the volume within a workout style. 
And, you know, I've I've seen similar and do similar things in quote unquote, we'll call it our tempo threshold kind of category, right? It's that early on with college runners, I tend to do what I call like straight tempos, <laughs> which are just like the normal thing, right? 20 minutes, four miles, you know, five miles, three miles, whatever it is for that athlete at just your steady tempo pace, right? And then you start adding variation as they adapt to that in the sense of maybe we'll go, we'll include a progression in it where the last mile, I want you to go pretty hard or we'll split it up where we go 20 minutes and then uh, 10 minutes with the last 10 minutes progressing down. And then you start adding like a variation within the workout. So instead of a tempo, it's like, well, we're going to do 800 on, 800 off, just, you know, 15 seconds faster and 15 seconds slower than than tempo or whatever have you per mile pace. Um, and then then you start, you, you start doing like, you know, for example, Brian Barraza during his senior year is his quote unquote kind of high-end tempo threshold stuff would include some of those variations. But then we do things where we're doing a lot of, we're doing faster than tempo work with, with uh, very short recovery jogs as a means to enhance that. So kind of pulling that tempo threshold up instead of uh, pushing it up, right? So there's all sorts of this like variation and stimulus aimed at the same thing that you can do and get creative with if you understand like, hey, we're trying to get a stimulus and an adaptation versus like trying to check this box of this workout that needs to be done. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, when you talk about increasing anything, you got to think long and hard about the effects of the effects of the effects, right? Like you have first order, second order, and third order effects. And that's the hardest part. I mean, I labor so long thinking about, okay, what are the uh, training, immediate training effects I want to see, the intermediate, the long-term training effects, and then how will I know that those effects are taking place? after a certain block of time of exposure, of repeat exposure to this stimulus. And while, again, increasing volume is the easy button, just how do I get better, coach, run more, because the people who run more are better. And it's like, like any generality, it's true, but the nuance needs to be unpacked. And so when you look at, okay, why, say, the linear approach worked, why say the Schumacher approach works is in that base phase, as we'll call it, or condition general conditioning phase, as Konova calls it. The goal is to naturally, from an internal load, so um, based on how you feel, run the miles you're running generally faster, and that's the marker of fitness. You're not trying to hit a pace target or quota during that period. It's all internal. Some days you feel great. You know, you bust out some days it's you feel awful. So it's a slog, what have you. But over time, over however long that period, general prep period is, you start to naturally, that pace starts to come down. And that's a signal that your body is getting more efficient. And again, from a fueling substrate, um, preference standpoint and using more oxidative fatty acid fuelings as the primary fueling substrate, right? So then what you want to do once that's come into play 
is then you start doing that glycolytic work, right? That, that acidosis, that lactate tolerance work, because now you're trying to raise that ceiling based off the back of the oxidative work you put in <laughs> and then hopefully get your desired race pace to be initially or have it for the majority of the race be longer heavily relying on fatty acid as a fueling substrate versus glycogen. And the way Canova talks about this is, he's like, you have two tanks. You have the diesel, humongous tank is fatty acid. And then you have the small, very, very uh, turbo fuel glycogen. And, you know, glycogen is competing because it's stored primary in the liver and some of the muscle tissue with also as the primary fueling for the brain, right? And glycogen is easy. It's, we use that as the default, but it's a very limited amount. Even the super skinny Kenyans, you know, they have lots of fatty acid because we need a lot of fat in our bodies, um, you know, relative to glycogen to, you know, be alive. So that fuel is like, quote unquote, endless, right? In theory. So the more and more and more you can rely on fatty acid as your fueling substrate and be oxidative, you know, we call this aerobic, the more aerobic you can run your race pace as, the easier it is to run this race pace. And then when it turn, comes time to kick, to switch on to the afterburners, right, that alactic and glycolytic fueling substrates, you haven't tapped into that as much. And so you're highly coordinated, you feel fresh, you feel awesome, and you kick. And this is the argument most distance coaches make is you got to, you know, be able to get to the end of the race fresh so that you can actually use your speed. So why would I do speeds earlier rather than later um, when it doesn't matter if I can't even get to the end of the race with enough fuel and quote unquote freshness to be able to kick. But it's all a balance. It's all this kind of moving target because again, when you do acidosis tolerance training, right? Or um, that stuff is in glycolytic world, but it, the adaptation, the rate of adaptation to it happens very quick, six to eight weeks. Like if you just do it once a week for six to eight weeks, that number of exposure, you've kind of then hit a plateau and you don't get as much rate of return based off your effort. And this is a, as an aside, why feed the cats cannot work as a pure copy and paste to distance running. And I love Tony and I love what he's talking about. But when you he the sprinters that he works with rely primarily on alactic and glycolytic power and capacity to to you know make them faster and better. In distance running, we cannot ignore the aerobic component, the oxidative component. You need to be able to be really efficient at using fatty acids as a, a primary fueling substrate for the majority of your event. And you know the athletes who do that if you just watch any on track time trial 5K or 10K. Halfway in, the front part of the pack keeps moving at that pace. Halfway in, the middle of the back of that pack, boom, explodes. What you're seeing is people who are running that race glycolytically or primary on glycogen as their primary fueling substrate, who then got into lactate being produced at such a frequency and level that it started to spill over into the bloodstream. And now they're getting discoordinated, they're slowing down, their body's slipping on the signals like, you need to stop running this pace, you silly person, you're not ready to do this, you're not conditioned to do this. But you're like, but I did all these workouts to run this pace. But the way the workouts were designed did not actually either have enough time or were designed in a way that really prepared you for the demands of that race. And then, boom, 
you have these people who are like, then it wills down to like four or five people in the front of that five or 10 who are really dealing in actually racing versus, and you know, and you know, uh, who haven't quote unquote cracked or blown up as we call it versus everyone else. Who's just kind of, you know, willing themselves in this like acidosis pool <laughs> or sea racing to try to finish the 5k or finish the 10k when, you know, ideally they, they shouldn't, they're not conditioned yet. Uh, and that's, that's, is the signal that that tells us as a coach They're they haven't done the right conditioning work yet to get themselves to the finish line in a, you know, very oxidative aerobic state. Yeah. So let's, let's kind of tie some of these different threads together. And I think by doing so, as you mentioned in there that like, Oh, like for this kind of anaerobic, uh, type style, it might take six to eight weeks to kind of max out. And if we go back all the way back to Lydiard, that was one of the key observations that he had. And it's why we got sent down this modern periodization scheme that Lydiard um, helped um, implement and that uh, a lot of programs have taken adjusted, but it's based on, right? Is that, hey, this system takes shorter to develop. And he noticed, hey, the original like Lydiard base phase, quote unquote, was the longest because he noticed, hey, for these athletes, it takes the longest to develop and adapt to. So I better do that. And what you're getting there is essentially training that is designed based on the adaptation levels of the athletes and the stimuluses that you give them. So when we're talking about mileage increases, I think it comes back to exactly that, exactly that concept that Lydiard gave is it is adaptation driven. Okay. If it takes a long time for your your athlete, bone, muscles, et cetera, to adapt, then that mileage increase has to be slow and gradual. If the athlete, for whatever reason, is robust and mechanically sound and adapts in a relatively quick way, then that mileage increase can go relatively rapidly. If the athlete has, quote unquote, been there before, in terms of mileage increases. Well, it is very easy to jump up, right? When I was young and actually in shape and fit and robust as an athlete, I could take a couple of weeks off, go from zero miles to 50 miles to like 90 miles in like two to three weeks and be completely fine. Why? Because I had years and years of running higher type mileage that my body was adapted to that norm and that norm is the key right it's it's venturing away from that venturing outside of that where we have to uh start dialing in and understanding the caution no different than a sprinter for example when he comes back to training yeah it'll take you know a a couple workouts but after a, a relatively short period of time, they can get up to, you know, near max speeds. If I have an uncoordinated distance runner and throw them just straight into near max speeds, A, they won't get near max because they don't have the uh, ability or capacity to utilize. And then B, the injury rate probably goes up because they haven't been accustomed to it. 
So it's understanding this kind of nuance and context around it when we're deciding how to increase our mileage, how to change the training adaptation and the stimulus with it. I'm going to end with the Alan Webb example. So in high school, Alan was a swimmer, right? And so he's getting a lot of aerobic or oxidative or fatty acid um, conditioning to his energy system through swimming. And he swam, you know, five to like eight hours a week. It might've been more. Then he goes into track and training and he meets Rasco. Rasco brilliantly understood, hey, that guy's getting enough, you know, time in swimming to condition the aerobic system in a really robust manner. The limiting factor here is going to be mechanical. And so what Rasco did was emphasize low running mileage, but high quality so teaching him efficiency of movement, doing drills and plyometrics, med ball, time in the weight room, right? So Alan mechanically over those periods became really sound and adapted really well to those um, more, let's say, glycolytic or faster type running work and skill work because he did have this base, aerobic base that was earned through swimming. Really brilliant. And it's an anomaly, right? It was just kind of like this, this luck. Then what happens, right? Alan goes to Michigan and does not do swimming and does not do as much of this skill work. And he kind of flounders, right? That, that year at Michigan. And it was very frustrating for him. And then it took a little while to get back on track when he left and went to Rasco. And then, you know, again, if you look at the training logs, what is he doing in the buildup to that magical 2007 um, year, right? Well, his butt didn't tell Rasco this, but his butt smartly, you know, in hindsight, was in the pool uh, three, four days a week, swimming hard with like a master swim club in the early morning, um, you know, an hour to two hours, right? So he's getting another three to six hours of cardio, aerobic, oxidative, fatty acid, they're all the same thing, work. And we know the aerobic system responds like that, recovers very quickly. There's no mechanical stress because he's swimming. Great. Now all of a sudden, Alan's doing all this other skill work, right? All this other refined work, uh, fast intervals, like those really sexy sessions Steve and I have posted here and there, 10, 20 times a quarter, ending in 50, whatever. But that was all built off of the synthesis of years of this skill work, him finding the correct aerobic modality that he mechanically could handle and, uh, you know, that would benefit him and then being able to maximize it on uh, a training and racing perspective. Fast forward, right, when he goes to Alberto, even with Vidge and even Jerry, um, not in the pool much, right? So they're all placing higher mechanical loads, especially with Jerry. Like he was running 140 miles a week in the fall with when he, you know, at the end of his career, he's Jerry. But it didn't have the same um, positive adaptation because the mechanical load was so damn high that it caused him to break down like a normal human being. And that's the hard part we don't realize. A lot of people on the outside don't realize about Alan in, as an athlete, totally normal human being, just. He had the right synthesis and happenstance of um, stress and stimuli in modalities that fit him, that elevated him to the level he, you know, was able to be. And why sometimes why he was so up and down 
you know, and he astutely understood like when he didn't swim, he just wasn't as good because he couldn't get the physiological or energy system stimulus as well through running because he would end up like any human being reach a mechanical tipping point and start breaking down. And that, you know, in hindsight, having talked to him and uh, reviewed his training logs, that was the key, right? Is that, uh, that oxidative training, that aerobic training um, that, he, that he did frequently in the pool was able to translate to being able to uh, focus more of his running volume and time and percentage on faster uh, more, more coordinated work that actually had a direct correlation to what he was trying to accomplish on the track on race day, rather than all this um, mechanical work that would compromise his recovery session to session or workout to workout or week to week. It didn't. It didn't have that effect because he wasn't waiting on the mechanical um, components of his body to bounce back because he just went in the pool instead to get that oxidative recovery or oxidative um aerobic threshold boost yeah i'm glad you brought up i think that's a a perfect example of the kind of nuance around things and and how it how it applies so we challenge you guys as coaches and runners and listeners to think about some of these concepts on a deeper level i know it sounds like we're complexifying the crap out of it but it's it's really kind of giving yourself the time to think about these interactions instead of succumbing to the very simple, hey, I need to increase my volume by 10% until eternity or until <laughs> we, we hit some magic. Well, uh, no, I'll, I'll simplify it, Steve. The, the title was increasing mileage, right? When, why, and how. When should you increase mileage, right? When that is a, when you deem that as a stimulus that is novel and that that's going to have a really, really big impact, you know, in a positive direction on the runner uh, or the athlete immediately and, you know, in the intermediate and potentially long-term of their career, right? So why, why should you increase it? I would increase it to increase fatty acid um, efficient, feeling uh, substrate efficiency. That would be, and how is you increase the, First, the speed of volume or the speed that you're running, and then you can start to add a little bit more time. So that it's it, 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 to me, that's the simple way to kind of understand and questions to ask as a coach when you are considering increasing mileage. All right, summed up. That is there. There is your answer. So, um, <laughs> until next time, everybody, check out our scholar program. Check out our offerings. We've got new and cool stuff coming in the Yes, future. training talks are coming to the scholar program. Steve, let's tell them about training talks because Tra- this training, is pretty awesome. Training talks is pretty simple, and I think it's great. As John and I will take on a new topic basically every month, you'll get – a individual podcast from John on that topic. Let's say, let's take this one. Mileage, you'd get a nice little 30 minutes of John discussing his views and and the science and practice and integration on his views. Then you'd get a nice 30-minute, you know, podcast with me outlining everything that I know. And then the best part is, at the end, we all come together as a scholar program we have a discussion on Zoom about these concepts. 
And it's great. Yeah. So interaction, learning, development, all rolled up into one. Yep. So essentially it's Steve on his soapbox, me on my soapbox one week after another, and then come together with Q&A for Training Talk Live where scholars submit their questions about what Steve and I covered or didn't cover on our little soapbox. And then we have a bigger global dialogue where it's not just me and Steve pontificating, but, you know, hearing what other scholars' views, experiences, and um, practices entail. And the first one that we're doing here is going to be on base training, the science and best practices of building a better base. So it kind of ties in nicely to this concept of increasing mileage.